You know, uh, we all think sometimes about what our contribution is going to be to the kingdom of God or to a lost world. And I want you to hear me on this. This is important. The single greatest contribution that you will make to the world is not something that you do. It is something that God has done for you. It's important that you hear that. We think a lot about what we're gonna do for God, and rightly so, we should think about doing things for God. But the most important thing you will ever be a a marker of, a parable of, is that God has saved you and is saving you. It's so important. You know, the gospel's not something that we do. The gospel is actually something that's been done. Do you know that? It's not something we do, it's something that's been done. It's something that we respond to. Uh, We don't do uh, the work of the gospel, we are witnesses of the gospel. The gospel is news, it's news of something that's happened. And salvation is when we respond in faith to the gospel. Jesus um, was really wanting to make sure that his disciples understood this. Um, he did a couple of practice runs you know, before the Great Commission. The Great Commission was when he sent them out to all nations. and He, he sent out the 12, and then he sent out the 72, and he said, you know, I give you, uh, you know, power and authority. Go declare the kingdom. And, th- and these were kind of these, these practice runs. And at one point, uh, the 72, it says in Luke 10, 17, or Luke 10, 17, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So here's what's happening. The, the disciples have come back, uh, the 72 disciples, this larger circle of disciples, they come back, they're all excited about what's been happening because they spoke and, and, and their power came out. Like they, they had an effective ministry campaign, a really effective ministry campaign. They come back and, and Jesus, well, 19, he says, behold, I've given, I've given you authority to tread out serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, listen to what Jesus says. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Why why is Jesus kind of throwing a wet blanket, seemingly, over this? They're excited about the ministry. They're excited about the stuff that they're doing for God. And Jesus goes, that's all great. But the most important thing that you contribute to this lost and broken world is not what you do, it's what God has done for you. You are a parable of God's saving work. And you have to remember that. You have to stay more focused on what God has done for you than what you can do for God. You know, the explosive growth, and think about this, I challenge you to think about this this week, the explosive growth of Christianity didn't happen while Jesus was alive, did it? It happened after he died and rose. You ever thought about that? Jesus did a lot of miracles. He preached the kingdom. And there wasn't really, I mean, there was a lot of people interested, curious, wanting to see miracles. But there wasn't necessarily like this this astronomic growth and birth of the church until after Jesus died and rose. The reason is because the gospel is the news of what Jesus accomplished on on the cross and in the resurrection. The gospel was the news of of what had taken place after Jesus' three-year ministry. So the disciples, largely after Jesus died and rose, they went and retraced the steps of where the kingdom had been proclaimed, and they gave the good news, and people began to get saved. 
Growth comes when, when, when people peer in and they see the good news. They see the gospel. And you might be asking, what is, what is that gospel? What is that salvation? I just want to read to you really quickly uh, before we get to the text. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul gives us an, expl- an ex- uh, exclamation of what the gospel is, what salvation is. Here's what he says. Listen, Ephesians 2 verse 1. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. In which once you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of, ma- of mankind. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. But God, verse 4 being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you were saved through faith, not a result of works. So why did God save you? He saved you so that he could show forth the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness to a lost and dying world, to all of the cosmos. She thinks, okay, Sam, what does this have to do with our passage? It's exactly what we see happen in the text. We think about Daniel and the lion's den. We think about this story. We think about Daniel, right, and the lions. That's what we think about. But the more I interact with this story, the more I realize it's not actually about Daniel. It's about God. And even more than that, it's about the pagan king who's very curiously peering into the tomb or the den, wondering if his guy is still alive. That's what it's about. And the crescendo of the text is not that Daniel was delivered, it is that Darius declares the glory of God after he sees God deliver this Jewish prophet. That's the climax of the story. Now here's where I think this is going to connect into our lives, and I want you to just keep this in mind as we work our way through the text. I think everyone, I know every one of us has someone that is lost who is peering into the den of our life. Right now, Susie, our sister, is in an ambulance. And there are non-believers that are looking at her, watching her, peering into the den of her life right now. What are they going to see? What are they going to see? There, there's a curious, we just, we just heard right now that, that Teresa and Eddie and Bona are down doing this, kid, getting ready in preparation for this kidney transplant. And, and, and all of these people are looking in to their den, if you will, looking into their life to see what's there, what substance is there. Every single one of us as believers are being watched. What I love about this text is that there's a curious king who wants to see what's gonna happen. What's gonna happen? The star of the story is not Dan. So let's, let's see. Now, before we dive into the narrative, I know we kind of left off at a crucial point last week. Let me just give you a little bit of review because maybe you weren't here last week. Let me just remind you of what's been happening in the narrative. We're in Daniel chapter six. And at the beginning of Daniel chapter six, we found that we are now in a new kingdom administration. The Babylonian empire has ended rather abruptly. 
Okay, not even an ounce of blood was, was shed, and the Persian Empire came right in. And you can study more about that in history, how that all took place. But now we have the Medo-Persian Empire, and Daniel has found himself pulled out of retirement and now under um, the, the, the cabinet, part of the cabinet of this new king, Darius. Darius picks Daniel to oversee these 120 satraps. Why? Because Daniel was a trustworthy man. And he knew that, that if he had Daniel in a position of oversight over these men, that he would not suffer any losses. Now, what we learned last week is that these 120 satraps don't like Daniel. Now, we don't know why. We don't know if it's because he's Jewish. We don't know if it's because they want his job. Or more than likely, it's because they don't like him telling him what they can't do. They probably are wanting to, to, to live in sort of an immoral way or govern in some, some what of an immoral way, and Daniel's holding them up. So they, they figure out a way to entrap politically Daniel and remove him from his position. So what they do is they, they go to King Darius, and they sort of tickle his ego a little bit, and they say, oh, great king, why don't you, we, we all had this great idea. We, we met, and we talked it through, and we had this great idea. Why don't you settle a decree that everyone that wants to pray to any god has to come through you first for 30 days? And so they, they bring this injunction to the king, and without even thinking about it, uh, Darius immediately signs it into law. <clears throat> And one of the things that we learn about the Persian government is once something was signed into law by a king, it could not be annulled. So now the deal is sealed. Then these satraps, they go and they, they observe Daniel and they watch him in his daily practice and they catch him doing exactly what he wasn't supposed to do, which was pray to his God, not going through the mediator of Darius. So they, they collect this information and then they come back to the king, Darius, and they say, hey, guess what? Did you not sign this injunction saying that if anybody prayed to any God through anyone but you that they were to be fed to the mouths of the lions or to be executed, did you not say that, king? And of course, the king says, yeah, I said that. I signed it. There it is. And they're like, okay. Well, guess what? Daniel, three times a day, on his knees, prays towards Jerusalem. We've seen him do it. We've seen him do it multiple times. And so immediately, I think at this point, King Darius starts to recognize that these guys are up to no good. They're just trying to get rid of Daniel. This is a political ploy. So sure enough, Darius is uh, held by his own decree, by his own law, and he is forced to throw Daniel into the den of the lions. Now, we learned a few things last week, a few applications, just to remind you of them. Number one, we learned that all of God's people have enemy, a great enemy, and that great enemy has many syndicates and many branches and many levels of authority. That we're not, uh, we're not unlike Daniel in this way. We, like Daniel, have enemies that want to devour us. But they, they don't want to devour simply our, our being. They want to devour our faith first. Okay? What, what the enemy was after here with Daniel was not just to simply remove him physically. It was to devour his faith. It was to see Daniel hopefully choose the world rather than choose the Lord. Okay? But the satraps... And the enemy here didn't realize that Daniel valued the Lord much more than he valued his office or his position or his prestige or his comfort. Okay, last week we learned that, that Daniel's true victory was in his obedience more than in his deliverance. The true victory for Daniel was the second that he said, no, I'm going to continue to pray no matter what. We learned last week that Daniel's faith was not by accident. It was a result of a disciplined spiritual formation. 
We learned that, that Daniel wasn't just now getting on his knees three times a day to pray towards Jerusalem. Daniel had been doing that for decades. And because he had been doing that for decades, it, it formed in him a spiritual grit and spiritual maturity that, that actually lended himself to be able to pass this test. He was a man that was faithful in the little things which prepared him to be faithful in the big things. So that's kind of where we left off last week. Now let's get a running start and go back to verse 16 and let's read. Then the king commanded and Daniel was brought in and cast into the den of lions. By the way, uh, they've dug up some of these dens of lions in Babylon and, and they're, they're basically a chamber in the ground with two, they're, they're a hole in the ground with two chambers and a wall in the middle and a door that would kind of open up and down and the lions would stay in one side and then they would throw the victim in the other side and then open the door in the middle and the lions would go through. Then they'd close the door, go in and clean this side and there would typically be steps on one side and then just a hole on the top on the other side. So they lower Daniel in to this and now he's an old man. Remember, he's 80 something years old now. Okay, now he gets thrown into this, this den. Now the king declared to Daniel, now this is, this, is the, this is the best the king can do here. Okay, Daniel was his friend. They had a relationship. He didn't want to see him delivered to the lions, but the best he can do, he says, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. In other words, Daniel, I can't do anything else for you, but I know you got this God that you're really committed to, that you're really continually seeking. Let's just see if your God comes through. Now, Based on that, who do you think the, the, the centerpiece of this text is supposed to be? It's God, clearly. The, the, the narrator here, the author here, is clearly setting us up to go, can God come through? Will God come through? Is he going to deliver Daniel? Let's see. The king is watching. The world is watching. Verse 17, now a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet. And with the signet of his lords, and nothing, that nothing, nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. So either with clay or wax or something, they seal the stone that they brought to be put over. And the king imprints his ring into the seal so that if there was any tampering, he would know about it. It seemed kind of extemporaneous a little bit that there, all of this detail about the fact that, 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 um, that, that he wanted to know that Daniel was really sealed in there. I mean, the highest power in the land makes sure that nobody's going to get in and rescue this guy. Seems kind of curious to me, kind of interesting to me. Just keep that in mind. Now we come to the climax, right, where I left you guys off last week. The climax of the story. And what, what's interesting here is that the camera, rather than staying on Daniel where it should be, or you would think it would be, inside, you know, we don't have like, like a little trail cam inside of, the, uh, inside of the den. Rather, the camera pans over to, to the to goofball that put him in there in the first place, to Darius, or Darius. So the, the camera pans over to Darius now, and we see his uneventful night. Verse 18, the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. He's worried about his guy. He likes Daniel. He has an affection for him. As I think, frankly, much of the world should for Christians. Like, we shouldn't be so annoying that the world can't have an affection, affectionate relationship for us, right? He wasn't like, oh, finally, somebody threw that guy in a lion's den. He was yelling at me with a, a bullhorn on the corner every time I walked by. Like, that's not what he says about Daniel, right? Like, some people wish certain Christians would be, right? He, he's affectionate about this guy. He loves Daniel. He, he's a winsome guy. He likes him. He wishes he hadn't, uh, you know, signed this decree. 
So he's up all night. He doesn't bring any entertainment in. He doesn't bring any, any food in. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't bring anything to sort of take his mind off of it. Uh, Darius just has a very sleepless night. And he's so curious. He's so wondering what's going to happen. Verse 19, then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. He can't wait to get there. Why is he so eager to get there? I think it's because he thinks there's a pretty good chance that God might have delivered him. Verse 20, as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out. Now, this is funny. Okay, there's, hum- there's got to be humor here. Like, if I were making this into a movie. He, he come- came near to the den Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Pause. Oh, king, live forever, is what Daniel responds. <laughs> like, what a, funny, what a funny thing to say. I mean, he gives him the salute, essentially, you know? Like, uh, I could have thought of a few other four-letter things that, you know, you could say. Uh, hey, dirtbag, you threw me down here all night. I'm 80 years old. These lions, you know, good grief. What are you thinking? And he's like, king, live forever. He, he's very respectful. Very respectful. I wouldn't be, probably. King was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. No point leaving him down there. He's not going to die. Clearly, God has protected him. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Now, note, if you've been tracking with us in Daniel, note the symmetry between this and chapter 3. Remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had their moment where the king had made a decree where everyone had to bow down to him, and they didn't do it, and they were thrown into the furnace? And what do you know? An angel of the Lord was sent into that furnace. They were protected, and they came out without even a scratch. There's a symmetry here to that. There's a similarity. This is Daniel's moment, okay? But instead of being thrown into a furnace, he's thrown into a a lion's den, okay? 24, the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. And are they, their children and their wives, before they reached the bottom of the den, The lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Interesting, that part's not usually on the flannel graph. Have you noticed that? I'm just saying, I, you know, like, um, so that's kind of gnarly. Let's just be honest. Like, that's kind of gnarly. And and, and the reality of what's happening here is there's a a script flipped happening. The script is flipped. The, the, The den that was intended to be for Daniel by his enemies ends up being the ultimate destiny of his enemies. Have you guys ever read the book of Esther? It's Haman's noose, right? Haman ends up getting hung on the noose that he intended for Mordecai. Okay, it's, it's very poetic, right, in this way. Now, some people would say that's terrible. Why would, why would uh, you know, these people do that? Well, just remember, this is an evil pagan administration. This is how they dealt with things. This is how the Persians dealt with things. Okay, and there, there's a practical reason for this, you know. Um, you're you're going to think really hard about who you're going to marry. You're going to think really hard about who you partner with if you know that they, if they betray the king, you're getting thrown in the den too. So there's a practical reason for that. But I just want to make a side note here, by the way, that, that God, when he set up his law for his people in the theocracy, he specifically said the children shall not suffer for their parents' sin. So in other words, you don't punish a child because their parent was a murderer or whatever. The, 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 the pagans here, they, they're not necessarily thinking along those same lines. Now, the narrator, I think, inserts the hunger and the power of the lions uh, to heighten the amazement of Daniel's preservation. 
Because some could say, oh, well, maybe Daniel just hid in the corner. Liberal scholars do. They all say it, right? They all go, oh, maybe they weren't hungry. Maybe they were tired. Maybe they were old, you know? Maybe Daniel was just so wimpy and skinny and old that they didn't even really want to eat him, right? Well, clearly the narrator doesn't leave any room for that, okay? Because that's not what happens when their enemies are thrown into the den. Now, we're going to see the, what I think is the centerpiece here of the text. God is going to reveal himself to or has revealed himself to this pagan king. And just like Nebuchadnezzar did, the king is now going to turn and make a declaration of God's greatness. Again, you note the symmetry here between Darius and Nebuchadnezzar. So look at verse 25. Then the king, Darius, wrote to all the peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. Now, Darius gets on his social media feed. He pulls up all of his different channels. He, he rallies all of his influence, and he's about to publish to the world the greatness of Daniel's God. Isn't that cool? And here's what he says. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Note that the reference here is to the living God. Darius, like this God of, of Daniel, he's the living God. Why is he the living God? He's the living God because he has the ability to keep Daniel alive. He's the living God because he's not made of stone and wood like so many of these statues that they would worship. He's the living God because he cares for life. He brings life to his servant, Daniel. And then 28, here's where the text ends. So this Daniel prospered, uh, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So we get sort of this happily ever after ending to chapter six. Isn't that great? Everybody say, ah, oh. great. And then Daniel probably died a few years later because he's pretty old. Uh, but then he went to be with the Lord, you know. Uh, so what do we, <laughs> so, Bob, <laughs> uh, so what do, we, what do we do with this? Okay, let's, let's step back. Let's, 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 let's think now. Let's zoom out and think about what are we supposed to do with this passage, Daniel and the lion's den. And I think there's two questions we always need to answer when we ask for application in a text. Okay? The first question is, what, would this have, uh, what encouragement would this have been to its original audience? Okay? The original, the, 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 the people that Daniel was first written to, what, what would this have meant for them? So let's interact with that really quick, and then, and then in a minute we'll say, what significance does it have to us in our era, in our age, in our moment in time? Okay, so let's start with the first. What significance does this have to the original audience? Now, this was much more to, to the, 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 the Jews that would have read this. This was much more than a cute story about a famous prophet being saved from, from lions. It was much more than that. And I think to understand the significance of this, uh, the meaning of this, this event, you need to understand the significance of the moment. So let me just give you a really quick biblical history lesson. I'll try not to lose you here. I'll make it quick. Uh, there, there are some things that are happening in Daniel chapter 6 that you don't see in the text. But if you read the book, you realize what's going on, okay? What's going on is that 70 years before this moment, God allowed Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to rise up and overtake Israel. And here's what God said through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 25, 12, he said, Then after 70 
years are completed. How, how long do you think, how long ago do you think it's been since chapter 6? 70 years. Daniel chapter 6 takes place at the end of the 70 years. After 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. Uh, and I think that's referring to Belshazzar, if you guys want to go back and read chapter 5. And that nation the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So Jeremiah, the prophet, has already said that he is going to deliver Israel, the nation, out of captivity 70 years after Babylon took him out. Now, Daniel reads Jeremiah's letters, right? He's a good prophet. He's a good student. He knows. He's familiar with this. Here's another prophecy that came even way before that in Isaiah chapter 45. Now, this might blow your mind a little bit, Probably about 200 years before Cyrus even existed. Who's Cyrus? Cyrus was the king of Persia. Okay, the empire that rose up and took out Babylon. Isaiah the prophet, hundreds of years before Cyrus was even, ex and, 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 and hundreds of years before anyone would even have guessed that the Persians would rise up to become a superpower and an empire. Here's what the prophet Isaiah says. He says, thus, says the, thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus. He calls him by name whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. So here's what's so cool. Daniel's no dummy. He reads all this stuff. He knows that, hey, we're in discipline. We've been stuck in this place in Babylon, but it's coming to an end. God already said how long we were going to be there, and he even said who the person was going to be that would rise to power to free us from captivity. His name is Cyrus. Now, can you imagine 200 years ago, like somebody writes that down, and then all of a sudden, here comes Persia, takes out Babylon, and who do you think the king's name is? Cyrus. And Daniel's thinking, oh my goodness, this is it. This is the moment. We're getting out of here. We're getting out of here. We're going back home. And that was absolutely true for everyone but Daniel. <laughs> Daniel stayed in Babylon. But if you're familiar with your Old Testament, which you should be, um, you'll know that the narrative goes something like this. After they got out of exile, Cyrus the Persian commissioned a rebuilding campaign back in Jerusalem. Read the book of Ezra. Read the book of Nehemiah. It's about the rebuilding of the temple after it had been destroyed. You're thinking, why would Cyrus, a Persian king, why would he send a bunch of Jews back to rebuild a temple? I learned this week, actually, that the Babylonians, they thought, hey, let, let, let's take the gods and bring them with us. Let's plunder the gods and take them to Babylon. And that's why they took all the vessels out of the temple. The Persians had a very different approach. They said, let's repatriate the gods. Let's put them back in their land. And that'll win us favor as we try to rule this empire regionally. So it's exactly what Cyrus did. He said, let's, let's send the Jews back. Let's, let's, let's make the Jewish God happy. And then that'll make it easier for us to rule. So Cyrus sends the Jews out, sends them back, sends them with funding and protection to rebuild the temple. And they're saying, Sam, what does all of that have to do with Daniel and the lion's den? Here's a couple interesting things to think about. Number one, Daniel is sort of the executive figurehead, if you will. He, he, he really represents the exiled Jews. And the lion was the picture for Babylon. If you get on your phone and you Google Babylon and you hit images, you're going to see lions. You can see them everywhere. Here's what I think largely the encouragement of this text would have been to the original audience. The encouragement would have been this. Daniel in the lion's den is a parable 
an enacted parable. It's a historical event, but it's an enacted parable of encouragement for the Jews to go, we were not consumed by Babylon. We went into the den being exile. We went into exile and we've come out of exile. We went into the den and God, our God went with us into the den. He has shut the mouth of the lions and now we're on our way home. And Daniel, who was probably a little confused, I thought Cyrus was going to be our guy, and now I'm getting thrown into the, the lion's den, right? But his salvation leads to the revelation of the nations. Because he was delivered, the people of God, I think, would have been greatly encouraged by that. So that's, so again, the first question, what, what would this text have meant to the first century, or not the first century, what would this text have meant to its original audience? I think, that's what it, I think it's largely what it was meant to do. It was meant to encourage these Jews that they had been delivered from the mouth of the lion. Okay? And that by their deliverance, God made himself famous to the nations. Now, let's ask the next question. What significance does this passage have for us? Okay, here we are 2,000 plus years later. Jesus has come. We're in the new covenant. What significance does this have for us? Well, let me tell you how not to preach Daniel chapter 6 first. Okay? If you ever get an opportunity to tell somebody what Daniel 6 means, don't tell them this. Hey, you're not going to be uncomfortable. You're, you're, you might not, you're, you're not going to have any struggles because God's going to take away your struggles if you have enough faith. Don't ever say that. Okay? And if you, if you do say that, then you're going to have to explain that to the Christians that when you meet them in heaven that were devoured in, in the, the gladiator arenas. You're going to have to go, hey, sorry, you just didn't have enough faith. You know? I can just imagine the name it and claim it people up in the stands like while the Christians are being devoured in the first century. Like, you just got to declare it! Like, as they're getting devoured by lions. Like, like, the point of this is not, hey, you know, we can escape hardship. We can escape pain in this life if we just trust God enough. No, that's not the point. That's not how we're supposed to understand this. It's not a story about how having enough faith means you won't suffer in the den. This should remind us that even though we're still in, listen, even though we're still in the den, meaning a fallen, broken world, the lion cannot touch us because we have been saved. And it's important that you understand this, is that we have not yet been pulled out of the den of this life yet. Have you noticed that? Have you? We're, it's, we're still living in a fallen and a broken world. And there's still a lion that's staring at us, wanting to devour us. But the good news is, we are saved. We are saved in the den. And I think Daniel, in many ways, should be a parable for us of the fact that we are saved in the midst of a very uncomfortable space. And that doesn't mean that it's not cold and dark and deadly, but it means that, that our our we, we will be rescued out of here. That's the reality. But here's the thing I really want you to focus on, is while we sit in this den, someone is looking down inside of us, and it's a lost world. The lost world is watching how we exist. The lost world is what, looking to see what we do when our God saves us and how our God has saved us. So here's what I want to do. I want to, if, if you got the handout uh, when you came in, I, I printed some handouts for you. They're, they're kind of throughout the room. You can fill these in as you go. I want you to see seven allusions in this text to the gospel in this story. I, I think that, that as New Testament Christians, there are so many intentional, intentionally stitched in allusions to the gospel that we just, that can't be an accident. I'm going to give you seven of them. There might be more. You can take it home and, and think if you, if you think of more on your own. What we're going to do here is we're going to see Jesus in the lion's den, okay? 
Jesus and the lions, and seven allusions to the gospel in this story. The salvation we want on display consists of seven things, okay? Here's the first one. Write it down. Substitution. Substitution. Now, in our text, we see that the decree of a sorrowfully bound Darius, okay? Darius has to throw Daniel in the den because the law says he has to, and he cannot get out from under that. And we see that Daniel was innocent. The text makes sure we understand that Daniel was innocent, Okay, uh, and, and this, is, this is abundantly clear. So that's what we see in the text. In the gospel, we also see that our God is also bound by his own nature. God must punish evil. God must punish sin. But guys, here's the really good news about the gospel. Our God is so much greater than a pagan king like Darius. Our God doesn't just go to bed emo and, and, and decide not to turn on Netflix our God comes out of heaven and climbs into the tomb in our place. What a great king we have. You see the difference? The difference is the better news, the better news is that our God didn't just sit and wait and see what would happen. Can you imagine if God, after the world fell apart in Genesis 3, he just goes, I'm going to sort of just go to bed sad and hopefully I'll wake up and everything will be better. You ever do that with stuff in, in your life? You're like, maybe, every, maybe the kitchen will just be clean in the morning. Maybe my kids will just magically be grateful in the morning and not hate my guts without me having to address it. You know, maybe, maybe I'll lose 50 pounds if I just go to bed and wake up and I won't feel terrible, whatever it is, right? Whatever it is. What if God looked at the world and said, what a mess, I'm going to bed. <laughs> That's not what he did. What did he do? God said, I'm going to go into the den and I'm going to take the place of my people. Listen, substitution means God was devoured on the cross in our place. Do you understand? On the cross, God the Father was bound by his own righteous, holy indignation towards wrath his wrath towards sin. He was bound by that like Darius, but rather than just sitting back, he himself took the punishment in our place. In substitution. What does that mean for us? So what? It means we don't have to go into the den of eternal death. It means that we have been saved. The greater Daniel has gone to the greater den, which is the cross, and has taken our place. So we see substitution in this text. The second thing we see, write it down, is incarnation. Incarnation. In the text, Daniel was not alone in the den, was he? He was not alone. You know, God from heaven could technically have stopped the lion's mouth just by a decree, right? Couldn't he have? Right? <laughs> you guys are like, I don't know. This is a trick question. <laughs> God technically could have just been, he just couldn't have, and just decree that lions would have stopped. But that's not what God does. God sends a physical present agency of his reign into the den to spend the night with the prophet. What a kind thing to do. I can imagine Daniel slept a lot better knowing there was literally an angel of the Lord in the prophet or in the in the the den. Just like he did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sends him the angel right into the into the, the, the furnace, right? So in the text we see Daniel's not alone. God sends an agency. In the gospel, God does not save from a distance. He invades the den of this world with his presence in the incarnation. Do you guys realize that when God saved the world. He didn't do it from a distance. 
he came into the world. Some of you have maybe never heard the gospel before. Maybe some of you are just visiting. It's the first time ever going to church. I want you to understand this. The gospel is this. God did not sit back and watch his world fall into to death and decay. God came into this world, became part of this world by putting on human flesh, fully God, truly man, experienced the worst of a human existence. He came into the den with us. And then when he left, he sent us his spirit so that we're not alone here. Isn't that good news? It's good news. So what does that mean? So what? Well, we don't have to face the den. Christ came into it with us. We don't have to face it alone. It, it, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Christmas is all about. God himself, the son, second person of the Trinity, came into this world. God put on human flesh and dwelt among us and has remained among us in his spirit who dwells within us right now in the church. Number three, write it down. Uh, the third thing that uh, salvation, the, the third thing about salvation we want on display consists of uh, rest, uh, restriction. Restriction. In the text, the angel was present and powerfully, or pardon me, in the text, the angel was, um, was present and also practically shutting the mouth of the lions. Okay, the angel wasn't just there for comfort, he was there for a purpose. And in the same way, when Christ came into this world, in the gospel, Christ came into this world, he came to shut the mouth of the lion. And he did so on the cross. That's why he said, it is what? It's finished. We talked about this last week already. But the truth is, and I don't remember who said this, but the truth is, our enemy is a toothless lion. He cannot devour us. Salvation is done. All he can do is run his mouth. All he can do is lie. All he can do is try to get us to not believe the gospel. The greater Daniel has come into the greater den and has shut the mouth of the lion forever. Number four, retribution. The fourth thing is retribution. In the text, the den intended for Daniel becomes the fate of the accusers. Do you see that? The den intended for Daniel becomes the fate of the accusers. The script is flipped. And in the gospel, our enemy, the devil, will be thrown into the pit that he desired for us to be thrown into. Read the, book, read the end of the book. That's what happens. Okay? So our enemy's fate is sealed. Number five, and this is a really important one, and if you haven't picked up on this one yet, go back and read the story again and you'll see it. Number five is resurrection. Did anybody else start thinking about the resurrection? They go and get a stone and lay it over the, the mouth of the den? Somebody gets up early in the morning and runs eagerly to see if there's life in the tomb? You're telling me that's not supposed to remind us? of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the better news, the better news is that our Lord is not in the tomb. He came out victorious. He rose. Why is the resurrection so important to the gospel? Because if Jesus rose, then everything he said was true and everything he said he did was accomplished. And we line up behind him as our new executive figurehead, our new human that we will follow in his new resurrection life. That's really good news. That's what Easter's all about. I'm just preaching all the holidays right now. <laughs> Next is New Year's. No. Um, do you notice, by the way, this is a side note, but do you notice how, de how much detail the author in Daniel 6 gives about the fact that the tomb, there's no way the tomb could have been opened? The same thing is true of the resurrection. The highest power in the land ensured that that tomb was not going to be opened when Jesus rose. In the same way, uh, Darius did the same thing. 
Number six, glorification. In verse 28, we see that Daniel's story ends with a happily ever after. And in the gospel, God's salvation is both an already and a not yet, meaning we're being saved right now, but we will be saved. Listen, we are being saved from sin's power. We've been saved from sin's penalty, but we will be saved from sin's what? Presence. Let me say that again, okay? We've been saved from sin's penalty. We're being saved from sin's power, but we will be saved from sin's presence. There is coming a day where we will no longer live in the den. Okay? We will no longer live in the den. We have a future and a hope to come. And the last one, if you want to write it down, is Revelation. The climax of this text is not just that Daniel's delivered. The climax of this text is that Daniel is delivered so that the pagan king is impressed with God. And this is what I want you to see this morning. God didn't just save you to save you. God saved you to put you on display. The greatest contribution you will ever make to a lost world is nothing that you've done. It's what God has done for you. Your salvation is something that must be shared. You know, we overthink evangelism. We do. We think, what if I can't say it right? What if I can't, you know, we think of evangelism, we think, you know, I, I got to argue somebody into the kingdom. I got I to be an apologist. I got to tell them all the things that, that uh, you know, that, that prove Christianity to be true. Like, that's, that's actually not what you need to do. You just need to talk about how God saved you. That's witnessing. Like, you are a witness to the salvation of God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, has showed love to you. He has raised you from the dead. He's pulled you out of the tomb. He accomplished it by his son, Jesus. Share that reality. The world is peering into the tomb of your life. What do they see? God forbid they see that, oh, you're so awesome. You figured out how to dodge the lions. That's not going to save anybody. What they need to see is you were a, for the lack of a term, better term, you were a wimpy, old, skinny prophet. And God saved you completely. You had no ability. You can't save yourself. God came into the tomb. He saved you. He did the work. That's what the world needs to see. That's the good news. You were saved. The greatest thing that people must see about you, I really want you to think about this. The greatest thing that must see about you is not all the spiritual stuff you do, all, the, all the, the power you have over this and that in your life. The greatest thing people need to see in you is your weakness. The fact that God found you dead in your trespasses and sins with no ability and he saved you. He sent his servant into the den and closed the mouth of the lions on your behalf. It's his victory. When was the last time you just said, God, thank you for saving me when I wasn't even trying to be saved. I don't know about you guys. I wasn't even trying to be saved. I was really trying to not be saved. I really didn't want to worship God. I just, I liked sin. I liked calling the shots. I liked ruling things until I realized I was really bad at it. And then in an instant, God's spirit allowed me to see that the biggest problem was me. And then if I would just go, you know, God, actually, you, wanna, you don't want to just love me and save me. You want to you fix me, and you're going to do the work. I just got to hand over the title deed to you. It was the most relieving thing I ever did, by God's grace. He pursued me. He found me. He saved me. He died for me. He's saving me. He saved me. He's saving me. He'll save me. He's the Savior. 
And the world is looking in, and what we don't want them to see is, look how strong I am, look how spiritual I am, look how much I did for God. What we want them to see is, look, I had no power, and God saved me anyways. He can save you. He can save anyone by his grace. So let's end here. Let me give you three tips for letting the lost look into your den. Okay, so this is going to be a little bit of evangelistic advice. Okay, three tips for letting the lost look into your den. Number one, if you want to write it down, be peculiar. Be peculiar. What do I mean by that? <laughs> I don't know. Let's move on. No. Uh, <laughs> be, pecu- be peculiar. Darius was intrigued by Daniel. Do you notice that in the text? He was very intrigued. I mean, there was something about this Daniel guy. Like, Darius is like, I got to see what happens. In fact, I'm going to wake up first thing in the morning, and I'm going to sprint to the den because I got to see what happens with this Daniel guy. There's something about him. He was different. He, He was intrigued by the way I think Daniel lived. He was peculiarly divested of all the things that all the other people were in, were invested in. Something about Daniel, there was something about his love for God, there was something about his devotion to God. There was something, you notice Darius always refers to Daniel's God as the one you serve continually. Like, man, Daniel just loves his God. And that's because the central feature of this text is not Daniel or Daniel's faith, it's Daniel's God. Daniel made his God look good because all of Daniel's focus was on God, as it should be, not on Daniel. And this pagan king was curious. I think there's a temptation sometimes to make the gospel less strange in hopes to reaching or in hopes to reach, you know, more people. But let me just encourage you that I actually think the strangeness of the Christian life, the strangeness of the gospel to a pagan and lost and fallen and, and dying world is what actually draws them in. One of the worst things we can never, we cut the legs off the gospel when we, we neuter the gospel when we try to take out all the parts that might be kind of not, not, not fit our Western sensibilities and we try to just sort of make it a little more palatable to the world. It's what a lot of the seeker-friendly movement, a lot of churches right now are just trying. How do we dress up Jesus and make him a little more modern? Inevitably, King Darius is no longer interested because the gospel is intrinsically interesting. It's intrinsically interesting because at our very base level, we know it's true. We, we know that life is actually stranger than fiction. We know reality is stranger than fiction. And when you read the gospel, you're like, that's stranger than fiction. And, and there's something in me that knows that's got to be right. Don't neuter the gospel by trying to make it less weird. Just preach it. Guys, I, I'm, I share the gospel quite a bit. It's kind of my job, I guess, so, you know, I, 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 get, I don't get extra credit. But, but I share the gospel with non-believers, and, and every once in a while I just stop and I go, okay, I, I just got to say, it. I know this sounds crazy. I mean, like, God's going to come back on the clouds, and, like, he's going to throw Satan and the demons in, in, the, in this pit and throw away the key, and, like, I'm talking about being born again, and, 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 and I'm, like, literally, I mean, I know it sounds insane. And, and sometimes I say that, and people are like, no, actually, I've never heard that before. I remember, I remember this one time I shared the gospel with this, this kid. Um, we were working in retail, and he, he was really concerned about um, the, the Sandy Hook elementary shooting. Remember that, when these kids 
where, where she, it was like one of the first shootings like that. And he just was really bothered. He was this non-believer. And he knew I read my Bible and he knew I was this Christian. And so he came to me and he was like, hey, can you help me understand this? And I shared with him about the wrath of God and the justice of God that no one is ever going to get away with anything. That all sin is going to be paid and that God is coming back to forever end evil. And he was looking at me like, I've never heard that before. I was like, has anyone ever told you the gospel? He's like, well, people tell me Jesus loves me. I'm like, you need to hear about the wrath of God, right? He was very interested about this idea because he knew it was consistent with reality. You know, we, we neuter the gospel when we, when we take out all the parts that might be weird or have friction with people, okay? Just deliver the news. You're a witness. Just deliver the news as it is and trust that that seed is effectual, that it will bring forth life. Within the strangeness of the gospel lay its effectiveness, okay? Number two, not only be peculiar, but be perseverant. Be perseverant. The reality is we see this pattern all throughout the scripture, and we see it here in the book of Daniel, and that, that God gets glory when we persevere through tribulation. You see that? Now, in the West, we don't like that. We go, can I skip the persevering part? I vote pre-trib rapture, please. Can I escape anything hard? That'd be cool, okay? I'm hoping for that. Let's hope for the best, right? But let's just be honest. What do we see in the Bible time and time and time and time again? God's people have to go through tribulation. But in tribulation, listen to me, in tribulation, we see preservation. God keeps his people preserved through tribulation. And guess what? The nations worship God as a result. That's what's happening in our text. God preserves Daniel, and because God preserves Daniel, the king now sees the living God and is introduced to Yahweh. So I would just suggest to you that it could be that God wants to allow you to go through some hard things so that he might preserve you in it and that the lost might see the saving God as a result. Just be ready for that. We should, we should be, we don't have to like it, but we should expect it. Oftentimes, it is not until we are put in very hard situations that God actually begins to shine through us and, and the value of our salvation becomes clear to the lost world. Number three, be patient. Be patient. You know, Daniel didn't contrive any of this stuff. It, it, he, didn't, he didn't manipulate any of this stuff. And it happened in the last quarter of his life. Okay? You don't know when the moment's going to come where you're going to get to share the gospel. You don't know the moment's going to come where God is going to, to shine through you and through your life. You just need to be ready. You need to be patient. And you need to trust God that he's working. So we'll end there. Let me conclude by saying this. When you consider the story of Daniel chapter 6, I don't want you to think, that's a story about Daniel and some lions. I want you to think, that's a story about Daniel's God. And about how Daniel has or how God has introduced himself to a pagan king through the faith of Daniel and the faithfulness of God to Daniel. It's an incredible thing. And then I want you to remember the greater Daniel, the greater den, who shut the mouth of the greater lion. I want you to recognize and remember that even though you're in the den right now, you're not going to be in there forever. There's a toothless lion in you, or in there with you, not in you. <laughs> kind of sounds like a, like like some kind of a self-help thing, like inside all of you, there's a toothless lion. Like, no, I don't even, I should just shut up. Uh, let me just read my notes. Your most significant contribution to this world is not something you do for God. It's something God has done for you. 
So if anyone in here is saying, I can't evangelize, it's too hard, I can't witness, I can't share my faith, it's too complicated, I can't argue the points, they're like, perfect, don't argue with anybody, just be a witness to the reality of the salvation that God has given to you in your life. Share the good news of how God has saved you, that you were undeserving, that you were powerless, and God has given you life in that. Amen? Let's pray. Would you stand with me?